BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, are you ready for government to dictate and control your lives again? You're one step closer. <laughs> J- All right, not now, Darren Bailey. Your Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this guy running for governor. What's he jumping on here for? I'll tell you what, man. He just always looking for an opportunity to come on our show, isn't that right, D? <laughs> Apparently, uh, your Ben Drosky show for Tuesday, October twelfth is just moments away. But before we do this, let's thank our sponsors: SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, our sponsors, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, chicagoreader.com. Check out the latest column from our very own Ben Jarofsky. And if you want to help out this program, you can, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky, and you can become a binhead. J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, October 12th. And live from my apartment, and still from his luxurious Airbnb in sunny California, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this COVID Coalition Tuesday, and here's why. By the way, before I take the deeper dive, I'm just so happy to say both my guests are here. Frank Avalone and Andre Vasquez are here. I'm looking at them on the screen, ladies and gentlemen. I love it when my guests show up early, on time. And I had a whole uh, dissertation. I was going to go on a whole uh, thing, if you will, about how the police officers of America have found a new ally in Kyrie Irving. Andre Vasquez, uh, the ultimate of the 40th Ward, is nodding his head because Andre Vasquez is a basketball fan. I didn't know that until I've been following on Facebook. Turns out he's been playing basketball on a regular basis. That's not what we're going to talk about when he's with us in the show. We're going to bring that for another cover. I always thought of Andre Vasquez as sort of like a cerebral hip-hop type of guy. wasn't into sports. Turns out he's got a pretty good jump shot and a nice crossover dribble. I was very impressed with what I saw. And he could dribble with either hand, left or right. And he talks smack. He kind of he's learned that art of just standing there with the ball going back and forth, going, "Oh yeah, okay." I'm doing that right now, imitating, <laughs> imitating yeah, Andre Vasquez on the basketball court. I'm just, but um, anyway, before I get to Andre and Frank Avalon, we're going to be talking evictions, and then in the second part of the show, guess what? It wouldn't be a Ben Jarofsky show if we didn't talk tiffs. Uh, Tommy Tresser will be joining us. Uh, his latest tiff report. Out and, uh, he'll be with uh, Jonathan Peck. So we'll be talking about tips in the city of Chicago. But this one just blew my mind. Frank Avalone and Andre Vasquez. I know you're not here to talk about this, but this blew my mind. Just before I came on the air, I saw a story in a newspaper uh, that said that the deaths caused by COVID to police officers is like four times the deaths caused to police officers by gunshots. 
I, I just like blew my mind. I hadn't thought about that. You know, I read the Sun Times, I read the Tribune, I read about the crime, the carnage in the city of Chicago. It's awful. We talk about criminal justice issues on this show all the time. But Andre Vasquez, I never thought that deaths by gunshots would be so less than deaths by COVID. And yet there's this resistance across the country, police departments across the country, police officers across the country to get vaccinated. That puts us like blows my mind. Like there's a greater chance of dying of COVID than there is of dying of gunfire. And yet, no, we're going to resist vaccinations here in the city of Chicago. The Fraternal Order Police very much opposed to mandates uh, by Mayor Lori Life. It's one of the few things Lori Life and I agree on these days, mandates. <laughs> you can take the number of things that Lori Lightfoot and I agree and pretty much put it on one hand these days and maybe not even use all your fingers. But we both agree on, on mandates. And uh, Johnny Canizera, the head of Fraternal Order Police, says, no way. Not going to have it. Not going to get him. I'm going to fight him. Meanwhile, he, by the way, has a vaccine. Just want to point that out. But uh, Zara's point is that he only got it because, you know, like it's easier to travel around the country if you're vaccinated. So you don't want to, like, give any credibility to the notion that, one, COVID was real, two, that the vaccine works. Because, folks, the worldview of MAGA is that, A, COVID's not real, and two, the vaccine is unnecessary as a result, and three, it's an intrusive on your liberties, which is a very interesting uh, situation, a very interesting take for the police departments to have since they've been forcing their police officers to take urine tests for God only knows how many years because of that stupid war on drugs. My God, a police officer may have smoked a joint last night. Let's make a pee into a cup. Meanwhile, on the other side, Kyrie Irving, uh, who is to the great basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets, uh, has decided he will forego a season and millions and millions of dollars because he doesn't want the vaccine. And all his, uh, many of his teammates are going, well, he has a liberty, he has a right. And we respect him. I, man, I don't know. They're taking that anti-shaming thing a little too far, in my humble opinion. I mean, Kyrie, what Kyrie's doing is so so self-destructive in so many ways and so such a dangerous message he's sending out. Come on. Come on, NBA basketball players. It won't kill you. Do a little shaming there. Sometimes a little shaming can come in handy. All right, let's, uh, enough on that. I just had to get that off my mind. I just read that article. I want to bring on Frank Avalon is applauding either that uh, or he's glad I'm done talking about it or he agrees with what I had to say. Uh, And uh, Andre Vasquez, uh, the alderman of the 40th Ward, have joined us. Uh, Andre and Frank, I... um, uh, welcome you to the show, Andre. I think this may be the first time you've been on my podcast. You were on my radio show before I got fired. I'm not saying there's a correlation between you being on my radio show and me getting fired. But welcome to the podcast, uh, Andre. Thank you. I think the only thing I'd add to, uh, to what you mentioned as far as Kyrie and all, and all the above is these are the same folks who won't let a woman uh, do what she wants with her body but ultimately want to make the case that government shouldn't tell them what to do with theirs, which is, is hypocritical at best. Yes. And don't get me started. Cause I can go on a whole thing about Texas and Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, I'll get started in this Andre and I won't stop. And they use the language of uh, the women's liberation movement. To, they used to, they steal their freaking language uh, for their bizarre opposition to vaccines 
and uh, and then just ignore it when it comes uh, to abortion rights. Uh, yeah. So thank you uh, for that point, Andre. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Frank Avalon, why don't you get started? First of all, welcome to the show, Frank, uh, housing thank lawyer. You, uh, and um, a topic of today's conversation, the main topic today is not Andre's basketball skills, although they're excellent. Uh, the main topic of the day is uh, the law a proposal uh, to, well, why don't you, Frank, explain uh, what the proposal would do regards to tenants, the relationship with landlords and evictions. Take it away, Frank. Happy to, Ben, and thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it. Uh, I do have to make a quick comment. I, I would just be happy if the police wore masks. <laughs> that would be good for me. And uh, I do have to ask Andre whether or not his trash talking skills come close to Larry Bird. Um, anyway, that's a great conversation. <laughs> no, Andre is not a trash talker in the basketball court. He's a very polite basketball player. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, re, I reformed from, from language that I might have used back in the day. Yeah. Yes. He learned that the hard way in his against Patrick O'Connor, who has since become uh, a, a gangster hip hopper. People don't realize that former uh, alderman Pat O'Connor, he once at a debate. Now we're really a far field. Decided to try to undercut uh, Andre by re reciting Andre's some of Andre's old lyrics. The people are looking at O'Connor like, "Are you, have you lost your freaking mind, dude?" Anyway, that's ancient history, uh, Andre. Frank, let's get down to business here and talk about a bit. Sure. Yeah, so, um, again, appreciate you having us on. And, and what we um, want to focus on today is something that the Chicago Housing Justice League calls our Just Cause for Eviction Bill. And it, it's really, really important. It's been pending in city council for a little over a year. We just had public hearings on it a month ago, and we're hoping for a vote soon. Um, but Chicago has 1.4 million renters. That's over half the population. And in almost half of the wards, the number of rentals exceeds those that are a home ownership. So rentals are dominant picture in the Chicago landscape, what the Just Cause for Eviction Bill does in its essence is it changes a very important historical dynamic. It says that if a landlord wants to compel a family to move involuntarily, they have to have an honest or legitimate reason for doing so. Now, that sounds ridiculously commonsensical, but when you look at the history, a 200-year history in Chicago and Illinois, the law has permitted landlords to terminate the landlord-tenant relationship, not renew the landlord-tenant relationship, and then to evict for absolutely no reason at all, as long as you give the required advance notice. Now, why does this matter? It matters because in our estimation, and these are only estimates, no one keeps hard numbers on this stuff, but our estimates at Lawyers Committee for Better Housing is that uh, over 10,000 families are displaced in Chicago every single year through no fault and no cause terminations and evictions. This is the vehicle by which gentrification takes place. It's the vehicle by which property flipping takes place. It's the vehicle by which uh, landlords retaliate against their tenants who complain that they want necessary repairs done, even lead remediation done, or if they call the city at 311 because their uh, building is in disrepair. So flippers, 
discriminators, uh, gentrifiers. These are uh, uh, no fault, no cause is the mechanism by which they clear buildings and clear properties in fairly quick order for tenants who have done absolutely nothing wrong. Many of whom have lived in the same home and in the same neighborhood for years and even decades. Good example, I, I represented a 97-year-old woman who had lived on the third floor of a, a, of a walk-up on the south side under an oral month-to-month lease for 34 years. And she was being asked to move simply because there was new ownership of the building. So this just cause law changes the dynamic and it says, you gotta have one of these specific legitimate reasons that we now list in law, seven legitimate reasons. Um, we, we're no longer gonna go along with this 200 year old tradition of allowing terminations and displacement for no reason at all. That's the nutshell. Uh, that's in a nutshell. And uh, Andre, let's turn it over to you. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show, uh, Andre Vasquez, Alderman of the 40th Ward. Andre, it was explained to me many years ago by a Chicago Alderman, Bernie Stone, uh, long since passed, uh, that renter rights bills go nowhere because the predominant voter in Chicago is a homeowner. Renters come and go. Uh, they don't settle in a community long enough to, uh, in many cases, to make their presence known politically. Uh, they're probably the least likely uh, to be registered to vote and hence least likely to participate in a municipal election. So why should we as aldermen, uh, Bernie, this is Bernie speaking, uh, bother uh, to implement programs that would benefit them if we should only look out mainly for the uh, uh, the homeowner? And that's been yeah. a prevailing view that of many uh, aldermen that I've talked to over the years. And yet you're uh, joining this cause. What do you think of that prevailing view? Uh, and why are you uh, allied with Frank on this issue? Yeah, I mean, if, if I was being nice, I'd say it's misguided, right? I think when, you, when you're here to represent the city, we're talking about the whole city. We're talking about folks that are undocumented that are not voters. Uh, renters do vote. Some renters make their presence known by running for office and winning a seat in the 40th Ward, uh, for example. I'm, I'm a, one of the handful of renters that are in the council. So I think when we think about what it means to actually live in the city, that doesn't mean that only property owners get a chance to have a say. It means that, we, if anything, we have to go above and beyond to make sure that everyone that lives here can remain in their homes because we know that that's a human right. And what we see is that although there are different levels of government offering assistance and rental help and support, those funds are limited. The problem and the pandemic are not. That's going to keep continuing. And if we don't make the adjustments in law necessary to protect people, we're going to see the repercussions of that. Right. What happens when people are being kicked out of their homes, are losing their homes, have that on the record so they can't find a new place to live? We already have a homelessness problem. So it's not thinking about our city as a whole, um, whether you've been in that experience or not. Right. Our job is to make sure the city's working properly and moving forward. And you can't do that without renters and other folks that live here. Uh, to follow up on something you just said, I'd, uh, Andre, uh, explain the correlation between uh, the pandemic uh, and evictions. Sure. Yeah. Well, we saw, you know, this is the beginning. I think it's very interesting because we've been in the pandemic for so long now that some people feel a little removed from how this all began. Right. When we saw the pandemic first hit, people were losing jobs. People weren't able to go to work. People weren't able to pay their rent. And that problem hasn't solved itself. 
right? I mean, you know, we've gotten to, to the point where some jobs can move forward remotely, some have reopened to an extent, but we still see the same challenges that people are going through as far as paying those bills. That hasn't gotten fixed, right? People couldn't pay their regular bills. They're still catching up to bills while paying rent and trying to support a family. So the repercussions of the pandemic haven't left us. It may appear that way because some of us have figured out how to adapt and move forward. But if we don't think about those who are still out here trying to make ends meet, we're going to find ourselves in a much bigger problem down the line. Frank, and what's been the uh, response from landlord associations uh, to your proposal? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Ben, because I think that this is one of those instances where there's a gulf between landlord trade associations and and many landlords. Um, At our subject matter hearing on September 17th in City Council, we had a number of landlords testify, uh, some who have been uh, small mom and pop landlords for 20 years, Uh, one uh, gentleman Taft West, who um, had worked for big corporate landlords for many decades and became a trainer of landlords. Um, the uh, UNETE organization in Little Village, um, that is a group of landlords, small mom and pop landlords, that support the bill. So when we, and Enterprise Community Partners, the funder of uh, uh, packages financing for um, affordable housing developments, they support the bill. Um, so there's a big difference, I think, between landlords and their trade associations. The trade associations, you know, commonly, when it comes to any kind of uh, reform or, or progressive legislation on property rights, they just simply oppose it. And, and you hear the same line of attack every single time, no matter what it is, for decades, um, that there's this magical person out there called the bad tenant that goes around haunting landlords under their beds at night. Um, that there's, uh, you know, if you pass just cause for eviction, that is the law governing 10 million rental units across the United States, the entire state of New Jersey, the entire state of California, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, St. Paul, Minnesota, etc. That somehow uh, this tried and true law that hasn't caused any disruption in the rental market in those places, that somehow if it came to Chicago, it would be the end of landlord-tenant relationships. All the small landlords would go out of business and, you know, there'd be no economic development. You know, they, they, they give this same line as though somehow tenants are this monolithic, uh, evil set of people. Well, it's it, it's your grandchild, it's your aunt, it's your uncle, it's your brother, it's that college student there, it's um, the family that's been in the same rental for 20 years. Um, so, I, you know, the, the trade associations pretty much believe, no matter where I've confronted them, in the state legislature here in Chicago, in Ohio, where I'm originally from, it's always the same line that... Uh, really, it comes down for them as a matter of power and control. They don't want anybody intervening in any way with the, quote, sanctity of private property. And yet, these uh, policies really help build neighborhoods, build solidarity within neighborhoods, give people a sense of place, help them anchor down and create roots in a community with good schools and transportation and good jobs, etc., so when Mr. Stone used to say, what do we care about renters? They're, 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 uh, they're vagrant and they, they, they move here and there. Well, part of it is because of the legal structure that we set in place, right? And I think it's not a hard argument to make um, that 
since 1978 and certainly since the Reagan administration in 1980, that this giant experiment of favoring, incentivizing the private market to make a profit about anything and everything, whether it's healthcare or housing. It hasn't worked, it hasn't worked. Stop pretending like this works, it doesn't work. So I think in light of climate change and the challenges we're gonna be facing for the rest of our lives and the rest of our grandchildren's lives, we need to have a different ethic. And that ethic begins with the idea that maybe we ought to be democratizing the decision-making. And how does that happen? Well, by giving people a sense of stability where they are, it starts there. And you can't do that without a policy in place like Just Cause for Eviction. All right. Before I get to the politics of it, and I start uh, throwing some questions at uh, Alderman Vasquez, uh, let me just cause for evictions. So what are causes that are just for evictions, in your opinion? Yeah. So the bill, yeah, this is the big change. This is the big punchline. The bill says you can't have no fault, no cause terminations and non-renewals and evictions anymore. That's off the table. Instead, you got to have one of these seven reasons. So three of the reasons are traditional tenant fault, and they cover all of the grounds that landlords have ever had for evicting somebody for cause non-payment of rent, disrupting your neighbors, selling drugs out of your apartment, whatever. I mean, all those things are covered. But the other four reasons have nothing to do with the tenant, but widely regarded nationwide as being legitimate motivations that landlords have for changing the use of their property. So what are they? that the landlord wants to move into the property themselves or have a close family member move in. Like if you want to have your daughter and her two kids move into the unit, that would be a legitimate reason for asking the tenant to leave. If you want to do substantial rehab of the unit, uh, such that it would be unsafe for the tenant to remain in place, that's a legitimate reason. If you wanted to condo convert, that's already a legitimate reason listed in the law already. And then finally, if you wanted to take the unit off the market and convert it to uh, some other use, like a commercial use, or you wanted to demolish the building or whatever, what was the Johnny Mitchell? Pave paradise, put up a parking lot. If that's what you wanted to do with your rental building, those are all considered legitimate reasons. And so you got to have one of those seven legitimate reasons for asking people to move. And where the bill goes on to say that where the reason has nothing to do with the tenant fault, but are those four landlord motive, then you should pay the tenants some relocation assistance. They've been living there for years or decades and not expecting to move. And it's an unexpected expense. They've done absolutely nothing wrong. And you're unilaterally uh, compelling them to uproot their life and go elsewhere. You ought to help them with that transition. All right. And and, uh, one last thing, one last detail. Uh, Who would be the sort of the authority that you would turn to in a dispute over uh, a tenant being removed from his building? Like, would it, is it, would it be housing court lawyer, a judge, or would it be an administrative hearing at the city level? Yeah. It's, it's essentially the same mechanism as exists now. We don't technically have housing courts in Chicago. We have an eviction court. Uh, there is a difference. I, it's a boring difference that we lawyers talk about. Um, but this would be essentially the same. If you want to terminate the relationship or not renew the relationship, ultimately, if the tenant doesn't leave, those end up in eviction because that's the only way for over 200 years that a landlord can force somebody to move if they haven't moved when you've asked them to. So it would be the same thing here. 
So if, it, uh, if you have one of the seven legitimate grounds and you ask the tenant to move and you give them the notice and they don't move, you can do what you've always done right along. You can file a case in eviction court. All right, uh, Andre, let's get down to the politics of the situation. Uh, my beloved lefties in the Chicago City Council, of which you are one, I know are for this. Uh, Matt Martin came on this show. He was for it. Byron Cisha Lopez uh, has told me many times he is for this. I presume Carlos Ramirez Rosa and Rosanna are for it as well. And my uh, and JT Jeanette Taylor, who will be on the show this Thursday, I'm sure she's for it too. But uh, you once explained this to me, uh, and I'd love for you to go on this riff if you could. Uh, Chicago is more conservative than people may realize. There's a conservative faction of aldermen in the Chicago City Council uh, who would probably be against anything remotely resembling this bill. Uh, and they have a lot of leeway, Andre, uh, more than their number, in my humble opinion. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I think, uh, what are the politics of this in terms of getting the support you need to 26 aldermen that you need to pass this thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's doable. Clearly, there are some challenges there. But I think I think there are definitely parts of the of the city that are more conservative than they let on. I think if you were to look at like the Trump votes, for example, in, in the city, although we know it's a blue city, there's a lot of pockets of red all over the place that, that affect it. Um, aside from that, I think there are people who naturally function from a premise of scarcity, right? That like, if anything's moving forward, someone has to lose in the exchange as opposed to figuring out a solution and providing clarity, right? Like what Just Cause does is provide clarity and cause balls and strikes in a more clear fashion for if you're going to court, right? Like what we see, so what Frank was saying earlier is if you, you bring people to court, the people that benefit are the ones that have the money for the lawyers. Your average person trying to survive through that system doesn't. But the concern that happens from some of our colleagues is, well, what about the small homeowner, right? And largely they're kept out of it. There's, I think it's six units, I believe is the line, if I'm correct, Frank, is, right? So it's, if you're six units or below, you're not really affected as much by this. And, and handling relocation assistance for these larger properties makes sense. But the two things that affect people's decisions are anecdotal stories, Right. So they're hearing something from a landlord who's a smaller landlord who's scared because they heard about just cause. They don't know the details, but they're afraid that they don't have the, the ability to evict in certain scenarios. And, and as Frank noted here, they're the just cause reasons. Those are still in there. But I think just hearing about it scares people. They then go to their alder and the alders kind of go off of that feedback and go, well, I'm getting a little bit of pushback, so I don't want to move in that direction. But I don't think what they anticipate is what happens without something like just cause in place. Right. We already know there's a backlog of evictions within the court system. We know that as people have the challenges to pay you know, their bills and pay rent, you're going to see more of them. And Ultimately, the city council members are going to feel those repercussions on the ground when you've got people who can't pay anything, who have to who get evicted because there aren't protections in place. So, you know, I, I think there's certain alders who are always going to be conservative minded, but I think there's some kind of in the middle that they're not really there yet. They've got concerns about any change. And I think one of my colleagues says it uh, really succinctly that people love prog progress, but they don't want change. And you can't get one without the other. And that's the problem. So I think for us, it's about being able to make that case and talking to each of our colleagues one to one to answer those fears, because I think that's what it's largely um, what that momentum comes from as far as not being in support yet. 
That is a great line, by the way. Uh, people love progress. They don't like change. I don't know who, who has said it to you, but uh, it's a very well, short I'll, I'll give him my credit. It was Harry Osterman. So the, oh, the, Harry from the 48 house. <laughs> Man loves the Bears so much. I saw this in the paper. He loves his Chicago Bears so much. He's asking yeah. the city, hey, just consider giving him money. Come on, Harry. Now you know. The Bears don't warrant a handout from the city. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on that tangent, Andre. Uh, but it's a great quote from Harry Osterman. i got to give him credit for that. Uh, and to that, I'll add this, uh, Andre, and I'd love to get your thoughts about this. I've been thinking a lot about this backlash politics. Uh, there was an article I read uh, in the newspaper this weekend. In fact, I'm bringing guests on to talk about it, about the overall changes that the Democratic Party is, is confronting as we head into these midterm elections and uh, whether the the Democrats will lose control of the Senate. And the position put out by the author of this uh, article uh, is that the Democrats are suffering from backlash politics, uh, very similar to what happened in like way back when, uh, way before your time, Andre, in 1968, uh, when there were riots in, in Chicago and other major cities, uh, and Richard Nixon got elected. And in backlash politics, the response to rioting or dis, uh, uh, civil disobedience is to go to the right, to go toward law and order. And we're seeing this a lot in many cities where they're pulling back and defund the police movements and giving more money to the police. Uh, And my guess is that uh, this ordinance, Frank's already shaking his head. Frank, you'll get to weigh in after Andre does. This ordinance fits in with just the general notion of, no, it's, you're being too nice uh, too uh, bleeding heart liberal, and you have to uh, be tougher on people because it's it sort of gets caught up in the whole law and order strike back. Yeah, what's yeah. your response to this uh, general notion of backlash politics having an impact right now? Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right as far as how it plays when it comes to like narratives, right? Once you're starting to move in a direction, your counter narrative starts kicking in. I think the thing that always frustrates me and it's easier, it's kind of, it's clear in this, in the federal level, right? When the Republicans get a majority, they run the field. They're not shy about what they want to do. They do it regardless. They go, Oh, you're the extreme wing of our party. Great. Welcome to the team. What are we doing? And they continue to move and make those changes. When Democrats get into office, they can't. For some reason, they go, no, well, let's make sure we're tempered. We don't want to necessarily do all of that. You end up losing any potential to actually gain. Right. So you could say, hey, let's go full speed. Let's rack up our wins. Look at the scoreboard and look what we brought to the American people. But they never get to that point because they're busy kind of mincing words between themselves. And by the time it's time, you know, their, their term is run out. Republicans get to come back in and go, let's get another crack at it. And I think tactically, it's just something where where the left and the Democratic parties failed. And I think we're going to keep seeing the same cycle up until the point that the, the Democratic Party learns to, embrace, learns to uh, embrace boldness, which they haven't been able to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, Frank, you were uh, shaking your head uh, or nodding your head. I can't remember which one, but you had a yeah. point you wanted to make in response to a backlash politics. So take it away. Yeah, just a, just a couple of points. Is is um, first? I want to point out that here in Chicago, um, there's some very important stuff going on because um, involuntary displacement by gentrification, retaliation, discrimination, etc. This wildly disproportionately affects 
African Americans in particular and communities of color. Um, when you look at the eviction rates and the displacement rates across Chicago's 50 wards, the, the top 12 are African American. Um, and so, you know, whatever it is that we've been doing, it doesn't work. And um, this is a matter of racial justice and it's a matter of health justice. If you look at our website, justcausechicago.org, it has a lot of data there on this point. But, you know, I guess, Ben, the only thing that I would disagree with you about is that uh, against the DNC narrative or against the Rachel Maddow narrative, I, I guess I fall in the Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi camp on all of this. I think that the, the failures uh, are not because of resurgence of conservatism, but rather that the Democratic Party becoming the party of the oligarchy since the mid 80s um that they have created a self-fulfilling prophecy they keep doing things from their technocratic uh uh neo-cap neoliberal approach that keeps eroding the public's confidence does nothing for working people does nothing for poor people and then when the backlash happens when people say well we're desperate for something real to happen and you give us triple doses of the same thing over and over well no wonder and then when you proffer candidates to talk about change and 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 don't deliver change in fact do quite the opposite then people will reach out for whatever other alternative is posed to them uh, i think that's what happened with trump's election I mean, quite frankly, I think that's what happened to Mayor Lightfoot's election. Um, people want the truth, and they're, they're desperate and hungry for it. National polls, legitimate polls, not political push polls, have shown for decades the overwhelming support for a Medicare for All, the overwhelming support for aggressive environmental policy, the overwhelming support for neighborhood stability policies like Just Cause. And yet the Democratic Party never does any of these things. And then they, they just become more reactionary and more reactionary and more reactionary. And now they have the audacity, Hillary Clinton, of blaming it on working people for not being enlightened. This is a self-fulfilling prophecy that they create for themselves. By the way, Andre, were you and I ever invited to tea on Martha's Vineyard? I bet no, you weren't either, Ben. Didn't get the email. No, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe we did. Yeah. Uh, no, but I was, point, I was not invited to a, uh, Obama's uh, birthday party at Martha's Vineyard, and I wasn't kicked out of the party either because I wasn't invited in the first place. Uh, Andre's favorite mayor, Mayor Rahm, got kicked out of, uh, of the party. <laughs> I just did that to make a Yeah, laugh. you did. You caused that. Uh, Andre, well, Ben, you don't want to talk about Obama here in the High Park neighborhood, just the whole fiasco of the foundation. When I see the 800 trees being cut down in my backyard, it's really well, to, it's quite heart-wrenching. Heart yeah. Go ahead, Andre. Point which I agree with, like, if you can't deliver, don't ask to re-up, right? Like, that's, that's ultimately the issue. If you can't deliver what you say you're going to bring to people, it's hard to expect, to them, expect them to still have the support when you haven't delivered the goods, which is ultimately why they bring you into office. If you really think that Black Lives Matter and you're really interested in racial equity, equity is not equal. Equity is giving people what they need. If you're really interested in Black Lives Matter, then you need to be in support of Just Cause for Eviction because otherwise the talk is just hollow. All right. Uh, before we uh, bring on our other guests and switch topics uh, to TIFFs, one of my favorite topics in the entire universe, aside uh, of my uh, bizarre nature, uh, Andre, uh, let's get, uh, I have to bring in, uh, somebody mentioned Mayor Lightfoot, so might as well close with you with the Mayor Lightfoot question. Uh, is the administration on board uh, with this uh, ordinance? 
<laughs> uh, I don't. I don't mean to, my apologies for the media response, but uh, I, I'd say it's going to take a little work for the administration to be on board. And I think it's unfortunate. I think when you're talking about being the kind of mayor that can bring people together, that can make sure our most marginalized people are, are protected, that really shows that housing is a human right, that we value people, that we want racial, economic, environmental justice. Um, the fact that they're not moving that direction and they need to be pushed is unfortunate for our city, but that's what we're here for. We're going to continue pushing. Wow. It's been a long time, Andre, uh, since we had a mayor who would initiate something like this. I think you have to go back to the eighties, uh, the greatest mayor city of Chicago ever had Harold Washington. Right. And, uh, it's, <laughs> it's been a long time as they say. Uh, and, and mayor Lori life. And I know you listen to the show all the time. I just want to point out that, uh, Alderman Andre Vasquez was one of the aldermen who supported you last year's budget fight. He was there for you in that budget fight. So at the very least, listen to what he has to say. I'm just saying, you know, just listen to what he he listened to what you had to say last year in a budget and he brought over his vote. It was a very he, he paid for it. A lot of people criticized him. Uh, and uh, so, you know, isn't that the way it goes in Chicago, Andre? You help somebody, they help you in Chicago politics. You know what I'd say? It's it's a new world with a new independent council. You don't got to listen to me. Listen to the rest of the city because everybody out here that's hurting. They're all saying the same thing we are. Yeah. And if you're not doing that. Maybe that fifth floor is a little too removed from the ground. Andre, I definitely want to bring you back to the show. There's so much I want to talk to you about uh, beyond this budgets, but I also, uh, I know you're probably not ready to delve into this one, but I would love if you would watch the Dave Chappelle special on Netflix. And I would love to get your response to that. I watched it last night. I'm just, watched it. I know I'm yep. trying to stay focused. Uh, and, uh, Andre and talk about the top the topics of the day, but I really would love to get your thoughts on the whole issue of, I don't know, uh, what is it? cancel culture? Uh, uh, is Dave Chappelle too, got, did he go too far this time? And, uh, just in general, talk about the, the issues in that one. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that definitely requires a lot more time. I have watched it. There is some nuance there. I think there are definitely the times where he did go too far. But I think if you watch till the end, you kind of realize what point he was trying to make. And it's a very challenging thing. In order to have a conversation about that, we need the time and we need to create the space to bring everybody in. Right. Because it's more complicated than just a thumbs up or thumbs down on what he's doing. Um, but it's definitely an important conversation to have. It really is. I appreciate that, Andre. Andre Vasquez, definitely going to bring him back uh, and uh, also bring him back to talk about. Uh, I, I teased him about this, but Andre, I'm really with you 100%. You're going in a different direction, opening up the courts for basketball. I've written so many columns, mostly in the 90s and the O's. I don't really write these kind of columns anymore about how the city would be closing basketball courts. I'm like, I'm a huge basketball fan, as you know, Andre. Uh, you can't say I play the game because what I do really is not resemble any playing in the game, but I'll get out there and run around. And I just, I was totally opposed to closing court. It just, it's just so, it just makes no sense. You know, okay. You need somebody maybe to administrate the court a little bit, you know, to be like a park supervisor in the court. Okay. You got next game. We got, let's not have fights or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Hire somebody, give somebody a job. You know what I'm saying, Andre? But no, the city of Chicago, it, people complain about loud basketball playing night. I know what we'll do. We'll take the courts down. That's all I know is the more you keep talking about it, the more we're going to have to do a pickup game and maybe your sports casting one or the other. We uh, have 
Now, Ben, you're, you're missing the opportunity, Ben. You're missing the Democrats' opportunity here. They'll privatize the courts and then charge a user fee. <laughs> oh, good Lord. They will, man. That's, the, that's how they go. They close YMCAs. They open health clubs. They close down park district courts. Go go buy it. Go to a health club, they say. No, I, I'm mm, with you, Frank. Probably. I was not in my head. Uh, Frank, you sound like a Bernie Sanders type. Uh, anyway, uh, good luck with the, the housing bill. Harry Osterman, come on now. Let's get it through that committee. And uh, you just need 26 votes. That's all, 26 votes to pass it. Andre Vasquez, Frank Avalon, thank you very much. All right? Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it, man. All right. Very good. Uh, we're going to move on, change topics now. Uh, Tom Tresser is with me. Uh, his partner in crime was with me, too, but he disappeared. I don't know where he went. He got tired of hearing us talk about housing issues. Jonathan Peck was with us. He'll probably come back. Uh, young Tom Tresser, welcome back to the show. Uh-oh. Tom, you're on mute. Tom, you're you're on mute. Hello, Ben Jaworski out there. There we go. There he is. All right. Uh, I hope Jonathan uh, Peck uh, returns to the show. But uh, at the moment, uh, Tom Tresser is here. And uh, folks in Chicago know Tom Tresser. He's the TIFF guy. Uh, I used to be known as the TIFF guy. And then Tom just said, no, man, I'm get out of my lane. I'm the TIFF guy. I learned it from you. All from uh, you, sir. Sitting yes. on your knee. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, great. Jonathan Peck has rejoined us. Uh, Jonathan, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. All Thanks right. for having us. Yes. Appreciate it. Uh, yes. And uh, so, Tom, why don't you talk about uh, how you and Jonathan are allies and what organization you represent, and then we'll get to uh, take the deep dive on tips. Take it away, Tom. Sure. Jonathan, why don't you introduce the Civic Lab, and then I'll talk about the TIF Illumination Project, brother. Sure. Uh, sure, Tom. Um, so my name is Jonathan Peck. I'm currently the uh, president and CEO of the Civic Lab. Uh, we are a do tank. We help people fight their battles on turf across the city, across the metro area. And now we're in, in working with groups across in, in 10 cities across the United States. Our focus is really focusing on um, a lot of the issues that were probably brought up in the previous guests. So that was almost like a great segue into our work. Um, we're, we, we, we want to make sure that we uh, watch the, uh, the, the, the watch the, the local municipal governments and, and state and federal governments and looking at the policies and practices that impact all, all Americans, but in particularly our most uh, marginalized and most disenfranchised groups, our most vulnerable groups. So we do a lot of training and development. We do a lot of coaching. Um, we support agencies and institutions fighting for racial justice and equity. Um, we are a Black-led organization. We're a majority um, Black board. And we're focused now um, on some serious um, critical economic justice issues through a racial and ethnic disparity lens. It's called the red lens. So we look at a lot of the issues through our racial and ethnic disparity lens. And in a sense, we're, we're here as the lab. We're here to increase and address the toxicity that toxicity in our civic landscape across, across the country. Um, and then um, Tom and I have known each other for years. So I've been working in Chicago since the um, mid-90s. Met Tom when he was a lot younger back then. He had his cowboy hat on. Um, he was doing his art, art, art and politics gig. Um, and uh, he came to, to Southwest Youth Collaborative back in the days. And uh, he enamored me, this, this, this white dude walking in with a hat and just this great energy and, um, you know, this great connection. And ever since then, we've been friends. And he brought me on board several years ago 
to help grow and expand the Civic Lab. I think the Civic Lab is exactly what we need in the city. It does incredible work. We train about 2,000 people every year unduplicated and all the basic fundamental skills of organizing, advocacy, grassroots campaigning, and um, how to be a forensic auditor when it comes to city, municipal, budget, and finances. And so we could, could, so it's a great stuff. We're doing great. Um, we, I, I, ironically, during this multi-pandemic situation, people are, are starving for online resources, are starving to connect across their turf, across their issues. And that really has brought us into 10 respective cities across the country and also some work in the Sudan and Italy. So we are just fortunate and blessed to be able to be part of the solution and to offer up what we think are some things that can be done to help um, alleviate the current challenges, but also create a more healthier body of civics across the All city. Right. Uh, uh, thank you, John. I think you got to understand how cities work. Uh, you got to understand how financing and cities work in the in, in the city of Chicago. You absolutely, positively, uh, got to take your head out of sand and learn about TIFs, uh, tax increment financing. Uh, it is a sir. Uh, uh, charge that they uh, slap on your property tax bill, which creates a fund that goes into bank accounts, largely controlled by the mayor in the city of Chicago. And the mayor is free to spend them as she wants. And more often than not, uh, the money is spent in wealthy neighborhoods uh, so that a program that's intended to help the poor actually helps the, the rich. Uh, Tom Tresser, I could never understand uh, why the citizens of Chicago would tolerate uh, this program on any level. <laughs> and even the reformers who don't want to help poor people, they just want to see reform. I don't yeah. know how they could justify a program that's intended to help the poor that actually helps the rich. What's that? This is Chicago, the most corrupt city in America. Um, and it don't, I don't really care who's in the city hall, happens to be a black female gay mayor, but she is just the steward, if you will, for the true owners of the city who haven't really changed much <laughs> In 100 years, their economic interests haven't changed much. Uh, Black and brown people have been kept down and out, been sandblasted and put upon for 100 years. That hasn't changed under Mayor Lightfoot, sad to say, even though she was elected with all kinds of calls for equity. And I fell for it. I was I was one of her supporters, which which I'm sorry for. But that was the past. So what what, what we're talking about now um, with the TIF Illumination Project is this ongoing work, Ben, that that. Honestly, you 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 were the instigator. I brought you to a meeting uh, that I was organizing in 2008. It was uh, the Greater Lincoln Park um, Democracy for America, right? And we were just looking to get educated. And this is February of 2008, so it's <laughs> I had a little more hair at the time. And I remember you came in with a property tax bill that you waved around like a drunken sailor, going, "Your property tax bill is lying to you." And I'll never forget that. I said, "What do you mean?" And so you. Ex- you proceed to explain and introduce me to the world of TIFs. Um, and I, and I, you know, the people that came before me, like uh, the great um, Jackie Kendall at uh, Neighborhood Capital Budget Group and uh, uh, now Congressman Mike um, uh, from uh, the far, fifth, fifth district, from the 5th District, uh, who was uh, who had been a Cook County Commissioner, uh, Mike Quigley, uh, and of course yourself, your own work, you know, here. So anyway... What you say is true. We had this giant shell game going on year after year. And what we do at the Civic Lab is something that apparently is so complicated, no other agency in Chicago can do, given their vast staffs and resources, multi-million dollar operations, you know, whole offices full of people doing, we don't know what. But the simple operation that our volunteers do, Ben, is we just open up all the TIF reports 
It's nothing very complicated. And, and in 2020, there were 136 TIF districts. So when you started covering TIFs back in the day, there was about 164, you know, and they come and go up and down. They, they have a life cycle. They live, they breathe, they die. Sometimes they're, they're, they're killed prematurely because they're so embarrassing. But basically, these bad boys have really not changed over the last 30 years. And they suck property taxes. So that giant sound of the vacuum cleaner you hear, that's your property taxes going into Mayor Lightfoot's uh, piggy bank, or we call it a slush fund. And then, as you say, it gets doled out uh, mostly to clouded white developers, um, who then, of course, uh, pay off Alderman and the mayor, um, you know, campaign contributions. So that's what we do. It's op- just simply opening up these documents every year, going to the balance sheet and adding up the numbers, you know, with this uh, with this uh, massive uh, spreadsheet. It's, it's a spreadsheet that's literally 20 feet long <laughs> when we print it out. Anyway, that's the source of our data. And so what we share with you today and your listeners and viewers are the headlines from the 2020 TIF reports. And people can um, can visit us at civiclab.us um, or email us at info at civiclab.us and we can send you some of this information. As I know it's a lot of numbers to just listen to, you know, over the over the over the phone or over the video here. But basically, here are the headlines. 136 TIF districts all across the city of Chicago. Uh, and that's about 30% of the land mass of the city. So just to know that if your property is in a TIF district, doesn't matter if it's commercial or private, it, it's, it's money gets sucked up by this, this, this thing, this extra legal thing created by the mayor and her people. And so uh, it takes every penny of new property tax value generated inside that district since the TIF was created. Pretty simple, right? Uh, so if there's a thousand properties in the TIF district, and last year they they sucked in a thousand dollars of property taxes, and then they created a TIF. Now here it is a year later, and there's two thousand dollars worth of property taxes from those same properties of the same geographic shape. One thousand goes to the units of government that rely on property taxes, and the other thousand, this increment goes into the piggy bank. So just just your listeners and viewers have to just imagine this thing happening every year. There's like accounting, right? So there's all these thousands and thousands of properties in TIFs throwing money into the TIF piggy bank. How much are we talking about? Well, in um, in um, 2020, we had uh, the, tick, the TIFs collected $820 million. So that's $820 million and again, these are your property taxes, folk, that are not going to where you think they're going. Right? That's the deal. You, you live in Chicago. It's an expensive city, but it's also a very great city. So that you figure, hey, I know I'm, I don't mind paying my fair share to have a great city. But it doesn't work out for a lot of people. The city is not serving them. Okay, so $820 million goes into the piggy bank. That's the first headline. The second thing we do every year, Ben, is to say, okay, you got all these tips, they're collecting money, they're spending money. How much is left at the end of the year? Because this is, to me, like the biggest important single number, <laughs> you know, in Chicago civics. Because, and before I reveal the number, let's just remind ourselves that the dominant narrative is we're broke. 
So is Chicago broke or not? And the answer to that question is really life and death, isn't it? For so many people, you know, it's talking about aspirations, talking about you want to have more affordable housing. You want to have kids not dying uh, from COVID. You want to have jobs. You have, you want to have a, a great city for everyone, not just a few people. Well, what if I told you that at the end of 2020, there was $1.96 billion sitting in the TIF accounts? That's a little south of $2 billion, Ben. So we at the Civic Lab, and, and Jonathan can speak to this in a minute, we're calling for the abolition of TIFs. They don't work. So I would just say, you know, visit us at civiclab.us. Check out our training. Check out our data. We're happy to engage in this conversation with just about anybody, but nobody wants to talk to us. So maybe Jonathan, can you pause to think about this? Yeah. Uh, And it's this the whenever I talk about tiffs. and I've been talking about, as Tom says, tips for a long time, because uh, by the time I got to uh, your group, Tom, I had about, I don't know how many years I was already into the game. Uh, and I had that say, <laughs> I was smiling when you brought back that memory. I had this property tax bill uh, and it showed that there was zero dollars uh, for the tips. And so that the reality is that, uh, as I said, your property tax bill lies to you because it tells you. Uh, that um, you're paying this amount to the schools, this amount to the parks, this amount to the city, uh, but it does not tell you how much uh, you're paying to the TIFs. So you're given this false notion that your money is going exactly where you would want it to go, and you're not being told uh, that there's a certain portion of taxes that are going to the TIFs and that all these different municipal entities, these taxing agencies have to raise their tax rates to compensate for the property. They can't tax because they're in a TIF. As I keep trying now to explain to people in Arlington Heights who are probably going to slap a TIF on uh, their citizenry to pay for the bear stadium. I can't worry about Arlington Heights, Tom Tresser and Jonathan Peck. I got enough problems worrying about Chicagoans, but I just like to tell Arlingtonians that. Uh, from time to time. But the other part, and I'll get into this, uh, I'll ask Jonathan this. This part blows my mind. And I give Tommy Tresher credit for this. Tom Tresher was the one who did this, uh, Jonathan. For years, the city would not tell us how much was sitting in reserves in the TIFs. Furthermore, if you really push them, they would say, we don't know, or we can't tell you, or file a FOIA, or they wouldn't respond to the call. So what Tresser did is something, believe it or not, that my wife and I had done. I guess it's a little embarrassing. Like a few years back, you take these annual reports. So each one of these TIF districts that Tom Tresser just talked about, Jonathan, has an annual report. So you have 136. Instead of just putting it on one document, they put it in 136. They do anything they can. Tom Tresser is showing the spreadsheet. They do anything they can, Jonathan Peck, to make this complicated, to make it convoluted, to turn people off. So you don't ask questions. So what Tom Tresser did was go through all 136 reports. You get to a certain page, and there's a bottom line for what is sitting in the reserve. He took 136 bottom lines, add them together to do what the city wouldn't do and tell you how much 
they're collecting in TIF property taxes because the reality is they take in more every year than they spend. And they like to keep that money there in reserve for Lord knows whatever reason. And and Uh, that's usually the first step in any organizing campaign is to increase data transparency. Because we know this is municipal systems, education systems, any system that you're trying to address in this city, or quite frankly, in the country, the first is to get the data and get it out there to make it as transparent as possible. And that is any, um, any decent, basic, fundamental organizing policy campaign. Um, to, to asking to um, continue to move on the process, and we can do. We can do a red lens analysis of the data. That's called a racial and ethnic disparity lens of the data. We now know um, this impact on black and brown communities in Chicago. Um, we know um, how much of the TIFs um, is being stolen from black and brown communities. We can track this back to when they pretty much started. We know the total um, total accumulation of wealth that has been extracted from these black and brown communities since they started, um, even though we know the original tent was to actually help uh, and alleviate and build uh, build up um, black and brown communities, marginalized poor communities in the city. Um, we know all this. And so I think we need to keep pushing um, the data people in these systems to make this more transparable, right? More open and more accountable to the press and to the media and to the people. Every alderman should get a TIF report on how much money is being stolen from their um, from their from their from their ward. For as an example of what you could do with data, um, every community, there's 77 Chicago community areas, they should be they can track by community area how much is being stolen, extracted from 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 taxes and being put into stuff. We know TIFs are anti-distributional, anti-distributional. So there's so many layers of how we can use data and make sure that they begin to report on what we need, and that's part of the challenge. The system keeps telling us, well, you come up with the answers. You come up with the solutions. We've met with aldermen. They say, we don't have any solutions, quite frankly. This is the number one economic engine in the city. Are you kidding me? The millions of dollars that we're paying you, plus the, plus the mayor, plus the millions of dollars going to the city government, and nobody has a, a creative, innovative solution to this racist um, slush fund scheme? That's unacceptable. That's, that's very unacceptable. And quite frankly, you know, the reality is we're in a situation where we've got a mayor who, uh, who, who thinks her time is better spent aldering and intimidating all the persons, right, versus actually sitting down and say, how do we end this slush fund? This slush fund has been around since the 90s. This city has had ample opportunity to get it right. They keep telling us, well, we're going to do it right this time. We're gonna, right. We're going to make sure this works for the people. They've had All too right. much time. We've given them 20 years to get this right. Yeah. right? And we know during Mayor Daly, it was used to actually bolster his, his, his patronage politics. So it's time oh, to yeah. end well, the slush fund. The, the, the TIF program... The uh, the TIFs, TIFs are just a viable way of raising money for a project. I mean, a TIF it's in and of itself, it's not a horrible, horrific thing. 
it's it's a means by which you borrow against future tax revenues to pay for a project. But you want to make sure that the project is something worth borrowing for. That's number one. And number two, you want to make sure that you're not borrowing more money than you actually need, uh, which creates the slush fund. And what Daly discovered in the 90s uh, is what you guys are getting at with that $1.96 billion reservoir. Uh, and that is this, is that if you bring in more TIF dollars for any project that you have budgeted, that you've on the books, you'll have money left over and money will continually pour into the city coffers. And that will be the slush. Daly figured that out or somebody, I don't know if Daly was smart enough to figure it out, uh, but somebody in his office figured it out. He loved it. Mayor Rahm loved it even more. He was like, wait a minute, let me understand. This is a continuous source of slush that nobody knows about. It's nobody's accountable for. The public doesn't realize it's paying it and I could spend it any way I want. Yes, boss. What's not to like. <laughs> okay. And mayor Lori Lightfoot and what they do, Tom Tresser, when they run for office, is they come to people like you and me and Jonathan Peck, and they go, oh, you're absolutely correct, Tom Truss. I really love the research you've done in this TIF program. You've really illuminated things. I want to thank you very much for your outstanding work on TIFs. And then as soon as they get elected, they just keep doing it. Why? They love the slush, Tom. And so I, I got to tell you, you talk about abolished TIFs. I don't think you could ever abolish TIFs in the city of Chicago. That's like saying you're going to abolish corruption in the city of Chicago. Man, people are so wired. You know, Jonathan's from, I think, uh, uh, Massachusetts. So he may have a, a more like refined sense of how systems work. And I'm from Evanston. So in Evanston, well, actually, Evanston's lost its freaking mind with TIFs, too. So let me amend that. I think it's. So, Tom, here's my question to you. Do yeah, you Evanston. think that you could actually, you want to hook up against this city to fight? I was going to say that, Olympics. you know, do you think you could actually abolish Chicago, in this power gets nothing without a demand. And so, actually, I think you can abolish this. And we stopped it. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. I think we can. I think we've shown in small victories across the city that when we organize and we unite, we can get what we need. It's happened before, right? It's happened before on multiple occasions. Multiple movements have gotten what they need. The, the challenge here is what you said earlier, Ben, is that the very organizations that should be abolishing this are so Googled-eyed about the slush fund that they think if we can only have that power, only that control, if we can be the ones in the gatekeeper controlling the key to the gate, to the, to the, to the heavens, right, we can decide who gets those resources. And at the end of the day, they become the very thing that we are actually opposed to. And so to us, you can't abolish just TIFs. It, you know why? Because it's a policy and it's a practice and we can, we can, we can change policy and practice. We've proven to do that in the city of Chicago, despite it being the most corrupt city in, in the country. Um, yeah. And the reality is there's also other innovations. There's other ways to create revenue, right? For me, the fallback, the default is like, we don't know any other way to create revenue. That's just, that, that's just pure laziness, quite frankly, that's just pure laziness. And quite frankly, you know, if you're, if I'm the CEO of a company and you came to me with that, reason you'd be fired in the spot. Yeah, I'm gonna let you go because clearly you're not working hard enough and trying to come up with imaginative solutions. Instead here, we actually uh, we actually um, promote laziness. We promote laziness among our older people. We promote this sort of this sort of this, this spinning, look at, the, look at my left hand while I'm doing with the right hand at the mayor's office. We put all these people in who are progressive, who look good, and they have all these town halls 
around pandemics and racial justice. But when you look at the bottom dollars, stealing millions of the very same neighborhood that are being hit the hardest during this pandemic, right? The, the racial construct hasn't changed much since the pre-colonial days. It's the same neighborhoods that are getting hit every year, every decade, every generation. You know, right? And so it's just another continuation of that print for us. You know, and, and we have um, and we are offered, all- and we've offered solutions. You know, our book, Chicago is Not Broke, Funding the City Reserve, lists $5 billion, Ben, of, uh, of progressive revenue solutions that, that, that are not red lights cameras, they're not ticketing while being black, they're not uh, plastic bag taxes or soda pop taxes, the, all the stuff that gets thrown on the little guy. We're saying, look at, the, look at the ideas in the book. If you implement them, they sound simple, but um, as you pointed out, um, they, they'd be revolutionary because we are talking about ending corruption. We are talking about ending TIFs. We are talking about ending police violence and, re, and re, re, recasting what policing means. We are talking about ending bad deals. You know, all these things sound good from the Better Government Association and the Civic Federation. All it's all it's on the sampler over the fireplace, right? Nobody is for corruption, right? We're saying you want to get serious about these issues and bring in a new revenue for, to make the city work for everybody. Implement the ideas in the book. Chicago is not broke. We talk about a public bank in there. We talk about a progressive income tax for the state, which is nothing new there, and um, a financial transaction tax on the South Street. All we crave, Ben, is a forum. I don't know where this forum would be, you know, in in the loop or in the community, maybe both, where we present the ideas and and, and let's have a thorough debate on them, you know, in the city council um, or in the in the in the in the halls of our religious institutions for this kind of movement. So anyway, we, we've been doing this. We're not waiting for anybody's permission. We've been, at, we've been hacking away for years. We've done uh, 183 public meetings. Oh my Yeah, God. no, I find it fascinating, uh, Jonathan, that Tom Tresser and you uh, do these public hearings. And uh, I encourage them because, Jonathan, one of the things that you're up against when it comes to TIFFs uh, is the public's, sort of like the miseducation of the city of Chicago, to paraphrase uh, a great book uh, from the last century. And I just see it. I just shake my head and kind of laugh at it year after year. They get away with it. This is a miseducation. Uh, and Tom, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Maria Pappas, treasurer Pappas, got a little bit of uh, the TIF fervor, and she uh, uh, sent out a report. She prepared a report that broke out uh, – the TIF expenditures by, excuse me, not expenditures, by TIF accumulation by Cook County district commissioners. So in other words, you could see like the commissioner from the loop gets more money, has more money in all the TIFs than the commissioner from Englewood uh, or the South side, because the TIF program favors gentrifying areas. It's well, just how me, it let works. Me, let, me jump always in, gonna... let me jump in on you, Ben, and I'll just add one more number, one more headline to underscore what you just said. So we said, again, our due diligence every year with, with our massive um, uh, volunteer you know, structure and our you know, massive uh, equipment of, uh, of spreadsheets <laughs> produced this review of TIFs. And we told you that they, they collected 
$820 million. So that's money that is not available to the schools. That's money that's not available for the fire department, for the parks. And we told you that at the end of 2020, there was $1.96 billion sitting in the TIF districts. Now, for the first time, we can tell you of that $1.96 billion, remember, that's just property tax dollars, right? Sitting somewhere, <laughs> presumably gathering interest. Um, how much came from the black wards? Now, if I'm a black politician and I'm a black uh, leader, uh, faith leader, whatever, and I'm making noise about equity, you know, treat my people fairly. We're tired of this, this BS. You know, I've heard dozens and dozens of lectures in the last year and a half on equity. But if you don't know this number that I'm going to tell you now, you are fighting one foot uphill backwards blindfolded. Okay, so $1.96 billion sitting in the TIF accounts. Of that, from the 18 black wards, um, it's going to be hard to believe, 969.3 million came from the black wards. So that's $963 million in property taxes collected from black people and their property, right, sitting under lock and key right this minute. Um, and uh, there's up more numbers that we can share, but I think that to, that to me is a startling number that says um, not only are we not only are we abusing the TIF program and it's not doing what it was supposed to do, but it's actually harming, it's retrograding, it's it's causing calluses on top of wounds, on top of scars. So so basically, what we're saying is kill this program, blow it up, um, and that 1.9 billion dollars would flow back to the units of government that should have gotten in the first place, which means the Board of Ed would get uh, about 70, 60, 65% of that, something like that. Call it, um, you know, about uh, $900 million. Yeah, Board would get 54% of it. 54. All right. Uh, and uh, I can go on and on about TIFs, uh, but let me just, this is something I really feel compelled to point out. A TIF, everybody pays. Yes, sir. For TIFs, no matter where you live, no matter where the TIF is. So if you live in Englewood, yes. you're paying for the downtown TIF. Why? I'll tell you why, people. For the 55th time, I'll happily tell you why. Because if you take property off the tax rolls and put it in a TIF district so that the schools can't tax it, the schools have to raise citywide tax rates to compensate for the money they're not getting for that TIF. If you take property off the tax rolls for the Lincoln Yards TIF on the north side of Chicago in one of the most gentrifying communities there is, people on the south side have to pay more in property taxes. Because the city, the schools, and the parks won't get money from the Lincoln Yards TIF. It's a citywide tax, no matter where the TIF is. And Jonathan Peck, I'm going to keep saying this till the day I topple over. Because I'm stubborn, Jonathan. And it's like, I, to me, the greatest... I, I, people say, Ben, what do you dislike the most about the TIFs? And I, I, sometimes, I think I it's the it. inequity of it. You're For incredible. me, it's just the unfairness of it, that it's a citywide tax that everybody pays uh, one way or another, but most of the money goes to gentrifying areas. And so that's where I stand in this. Uh, Jonathan, your thoughts? I just, um, can you hear me? Yes, I I hear think you. that everything's been said between you and Tom. I think that um, we tend to complicate things 
and at some point we have to go straight to sort of the uh, baseline. Um, and I think it's all been said. I, I think this can we can change our behavior. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, money corrupts a lot of people. Um, what I will say though, there's a lot of racial justice groups that have popped up in our city's ecosystem over the last five to eight years that are really fighting for racial justice, right? Um, and, and, and equity, right? And I think that what I'm seeing is that this issue is being um, blackballed in some ways, being pushed off the table. And so I encourage all of our, our allies, all those groups that are fighting for racial justice in healthcare, fighting for racial justice in education, fighting for racial justice in the parks, fighting for racial justice in the workforce. Uh, this issue cuts across all those issues. And if we were to able to unite um, all the groups around this and to say enough is enough. We cannot continue to let this be used as a slush fund. We need to end it, put the money back into the public service units, right? And restore some equity. And then absolutely, let's go hold those institutions accountable. Let's go to the park district and hold them accountable for their inequities on, among the, the 600 parks. Let's go to the schools and, and, and hold them accountable for the inequities among the, the, the 600 schools or whatever. Let's do that type of work. But there is no, no need for is the money to the neighborhoods and the developers that are that are that are written serious cash. Um, and I, quite frankly, I'm disappointed in our, our progressive alderman caucus. Um, they, they they speak a good game, and this um, people have their finger on the button. We want to be the ones to turn the trough on of TIF. Um, and I think we need to begin to build a grassroots organizing campaign, direct action based that will hold all their persons accountable and uh, we lead into the next mayoral race. Our goal is to make this a top button issue for the next mayoral race of Chicago. All right. With your help, uh, of Tom, <laughs> why don't we close with you? Uh, any give out any information. If folks want to get more, uh, learn more about TIFS and learn more about your group. Uh, take it away. Awesome, Ben. Thank you again. Uh, so Jonathan Peck, my CEO, my brother from another mother. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is Tom Tresser from the Civic Lab. So yes, please visit us at civiclab.us. There you'll see all this information. We are offering a TIF 201 training on October 16th, where we're gonna go deep into the weeds on the details of the TIFs and the strategies on how to fight them. So that's TIF 201, Saturday, October 16th at 10.30 Chicago time. Um, and you know what? If you use the promo code BENJ, you'll get $10 off. Oh, how about that? You'll get $10 off the tutorial, but you won't get $10 off your TIFF. Uh, that is for certain. Uh, Tom Tresser, thank you very much. Jonathan Peck, thank you very much. And I also want to frank, uh, thank Frank uh, Avalon and Alderman Vasquez for earlier in the show uh, talking about uh, the eviction law, the new eviction law that they hope to pass. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Illinois, uh, without him, uh, the show wouldn't be possible. And as Tom and Jonathan could tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.
don't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to make you walk home. 